The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. There has been a 41% increase in the diagnosis of ADHD over the past decade, a 40-fold spike in childhood bipolar diagnosis, and autism spectrum disorders once considered rare have increased by 78%. Today's guest, clinical psychologist Dr. Enrico Nolati, has witnessed firsthand the increase in the diagnosis of these disorders in children and is here today on Health Watch to talk about why he believes children are being overdiagnosed and how parents and professionals can distinguish between true psychiatric disorders and normal childhood reactions to stressful life situations. His new book is Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder, and Autism Spectrum Disorder. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Enrico Nalati. Good morning, David. Thanks for having me. So how do we know that this, incre- this enormous increase in the last decade of these diagnoses is actually overdiagnosis and not um, more screening and more attention to discovering these conditions in, in children? You know, you know, it's a good question. I mean, the, there's, the easy answer would be, believe it or not, that many, actually most children, shed these diagnoses by the time they're up into their mid-20s. So, so for instance, with a diagnosis with a, like ADHD, there's a study out of NIMH showing that, that um, you know, 75% or more of kids with, that are giving these diagnoses by the time they're in their mid-20s no longer fit the criteria. Um, you know, bipolar disorder, upwards of 35% of, of kids diagnosed with a disorder no longer fit fit the criteria by their mid-20s. And if you look at, like, autism spectrum disorder, a couple of studies I look at in my book, anywhere between about 30 to 40% of children that are ascribed that diagnosis at some point in their childhood no longer fit the criteria. So what I take, what I take that to mean is that, that many, 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 if not most children shed these diagnoses, which are supposed to be at least for a veteran psychologist like myself, uh, you know, severe, debilitating, lifelong conditions that don't that don't all of a sudden, you know, stop applying. And do you think that some of this misdiagnosis early on is due to not doctors not taking enough time to do a, a proper diagnosis, or do you think it is uh, changing? Uh, definition of the diseases themselves or or even pressure from the pharmaceutical uh, companies to to widen their audiences uh, all, all of the above david i mean I, I i the average length of a pediatric visit these days is sixteen minutes um, and pediatricians are doing the most prescribing of medications so uh, and you know, for psychiatrists these days, they're, they're, in the vernacular, there's the 15-minute med check. So what you're seeing, I would argue, is a shrinkage of time that uh, at least the, these mental health professionals are sp- spending with children and families, such that there's a tremendous pressure to like really speak in shorthand about a child to really cut to the chase keep the discussion symptom-focused, and, and, 
in, in our larger culture these days, we seem to be more comfortable, you know, speaking with quasi-symptom language. is distractible, an ADHD moment, uh, impulsive, forgetful. We, we, so, so, the, so much so that in the doctor's office, the average parent is more comfortable than they should be having a curtailed shorthand symptom-focused discussion with their doctor that then, you know, can railroad a child into getting a diagnosis fairly rapidly rather than sit back and having a a long, drawn-out discussion about their child and how they behave across contexts, home, school, you know, so much so that, that we get a really full picture on a child. Um, actually, if you, if you just uh, one last thought there, there's studies that show that um, with ADHD, where you're required to, to show that a child is symptomatic across two environments, uh, so there, therefore you should, you know, with questionnaire behavior checklist type questionnaires that need to be filled out uh, to, to substantiate that. Uh, there are studies that show that the majority of children, uh, there's only one questionnaire that's, that's filled out either by a teacher or a parent, so much so that if you, if you keep to the two questionnaire uh, standard, about 40% of kids, one study that I look at in my book, about 40% of kids uh, uh, then no, no longer fit, fit the criteria for ADHD if, if you just simply do what's what's expected, in other words, have, you know, a parent as well as a teacher or maybe three teachers fill out a questionnaire in addition to a minister or a tutor or an uncle or someone, you know, a variety of people who know the child well. So even uh, if you stick to that, that, that's one reason I would say for the overdiagnosis of ADHD in particular. One of the interesting parts in your ADHD section, Dr. Nalati, was the study that looked at uh, the age of children in, in kindergarten and that there's the possibility that up to a million children in kindergarten are misdiagnosed with ADHD simply because they are one of the younger students in the class and thus more immature and being expected to do things that um, are only having to do with uh, the bureaucracy of what grade you're assigned to based on a specific date cutoff. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, t- t- absurd but t- t- tragic, I think, uh, finding. Yeah, I mean, t- Todd Elder at Michigan State University, who's an economist, actually, ran, ran some statistics and showed fairly convincingly that probably upwards of a million kindergartens in our country uh, are misdiagnosed or falsely diagnosed as ADHD simply as a uh, uh, simply because they're either the young, young, on the younger or more immature uh, kid in the classroom. And he estimates that pr- probably something in the region of about, we're wasting about 15, uh, sorry, $500 million a year on unnecessary treatment for these kids, not, not, not to mention, you know, the, the harm that can come into play when a child is ascribed a false diagnosis. We're talking today with Dr. Enrico Nalati, the author of Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder, and Autism Spectrum Disorder. So what are some of the tips that you have uh, to help people 
distinguish normal childhood behavior that may seem similar to ADHD from the actual psychiatric condition. Therein lies the rub, David, and in my book I, I really break it down because, but believe it or not, I think in order to tease apart what is, what is a true di- uh, you know, uh, evidence of a true diagnosis or a valid diagnosis, and evidence of other things, and I'll talk about this in a minute here about ordinary childhood narcissism, really requires that the professional doing the assessment um, be solidly aware of what's normal, how does a child behave under transitory stress, what does a slow to mature child look like rather than a disordered child, what is evidence of just a, a difficult personality trait, but that is just part of normal human variation versus uh, a disorder, or at least a mild case of a disorder. So, for instance, what I would argue is that because we've loosened up the criteria for these disorders, made them spectrum disorders, uh, included mild cases, now we get into that situation where there's, there's a lot of confusion if you ask me about what's, you know, what is evidence of a true disorder versus these other things. But if you, if you look at something like ADHD, and, you know, I've been doing this for years, and it's stunning to me the parallels between what on the surface appear like ADHD symptoms and garden-variety childhood narcissism. So, for instance, one aspect of just normal narcissism in childhood is a child having what I call overconfident expectations. So, in other words, a child who who uh, has a, 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 a believes that they're highly capable of succeeding, that they should be able to kind of just master tasks without a great deal of effort or, or perseverance, that uh, they, they expect to know things without having to learn them. I think this applies to most children most of the time, and I would say it's part of just normal childhood narcissism. That, that can start to look like, like an ADHD symptom where the, a child then doesn't prepare, doesn't plan, doesn't practice, doesn't study, um, and therefore does poorly at school just as, a, just as a function of just their having overconfident expectations, not necessarily because they have ADHD. Or something like forgetfulness uh, could be simply a child. Uh, forgetfulness is, a, is one of the symptoms of ADHD. Uh, it could be simply a child who's who's under-practiced, under-memorized, you know, uh, uh, because they feel like they should just be able to automatically know things because that magical thinking applies. And I think that's an aspect of normal childhood narcissism that can get confounded with ADHD. And, and you also talk about a big gender discrepancy in terms of uh, the way boys and girls behave and are expected to behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I make the controversial point, and I hope I make it delicately and effectively, that I think that in our country right now that um, we define normal in terms of what, how the average girl behaves but not the average boy. And getting back to that kindergarten study, um, it's well known in social science research that boys are behind uh, uh, girls during those kindergarten years a full year in basic self-regulation skills. So that, that just means 
sitting without a wiggly body, raising your hand and waiting to be called on, not, bl not blurting out answers, just basic self-control, self-regulation. Girls in those early kindergarten years are about a, a year ahead of boys. The same applies to fine motor skills. And so the more we expect of kindergartners to be able to write, for instance, and write legibly or, uh, or draw shapes legibly, uh, the, 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 we're placing a standard that maybe comes a little easier to the average girl, not the average boy, that then makes them look like they have some kind of deficit. And I could go on. I mean, there's also uh, 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 boys' uh, uh, traditional masculine communication habits. I think the average boy tends to uh, uh, be business-like, uh, uh, serious, uh, engage in long-winded monologues, grandstand, uh, what's called be more egoistic in their communication patterns, less likely to read other kids' faces to, to get feedback of whether or not they're talking on and on too much. Um, and so that aspect of traditional masculinity, if you don't really honor it, uh, in some cases can look like just a mild case of autism if there's other things going on. Um, so. And then when it comes to aggression, I think that we really miss the boat uh, in terms of understanding the degree to which aggression in boys is just a like, rough-and-tumble play as a core, I would say, evolutionary-based dimension of social bonding between boys. So the more we disallow preschoolers and young children to just rough it up uh, and redirect them, and, and, and not allow them to engage in kind of uh, aggressive, rough-and-tumble play, the more we deprive them of what I, what I would consider natural outlets for their aggression to build expressive mastery of their aggression, and that can do funny things to a child's behavior or a boy's behavior. And, and I'm presuming that you think that the higher increase in diagnosis of these conditions in boys is partly related to this. Definitely, yeah. And the statistics are borne out. So, for instance, uh, right now in our, the latest studies out of the uh, Centers for Disease Control show that about 1 in 54 boys is being diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. That's about five times the rate of girls. Uh, ADHD is diagnosed uh, about three times the rate in boys as it is in girls. First and second grade boys are three times more likely to be medicated. 75% of students labeled emotionally disturbed and referred to special education are males. So I argue in my book that we really are abnormalizing boys in our country and we we definitely have to do a better job of having gender discussions about what's normal, what's expectable. Um, and I also make, you know, make the controversial point in my book, too, that most of the professions where children come under the scrutiny, their behavior comes under scrutiny, pediatrics, the teaching profession, the mental health profession, are heavily uh, tilted in the direction of there being females who, who are in the, that professional role. And it may be, and it's a controversial point that I'm making, that, you know, uh, a female teacher, for instance, is, is, is likely to have a gendered position in terms of, like, what is normal and expectable in a child. 
I know it's a controversial point, but I think we have to start addressing these issues at a public level to turn the tide of, of, of boys and traditional masculine behavior getting abnormalized. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Health Watch on KBOO 90.7 FM. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host, and we're talking today to Enrico Nalati, the author of Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder, and Autism Spectrum Disorder. Dr. Nalati, you mentioned autism and uh, mild cases of autism may be being misdiagnosed in, in, in boys who are doing, exhibiting normal um, boy behavior. Um, uh, we had Temp- Temple Grandin on talking about autism um, previously, and, and she talked about the vital importance of getting an early diagnosis for good outcomes. And I know in your book you talk about um, the dangers for all of these conditions of too early a diagnosis, both because of the potential of a misdiagnosis and also because of the potential stigma or, or over-medication. So could, can you, how do you parse that out when it's possible that someone who truly has the disorder getting diagnosed earlier, they're going to get the help they need, but someone who doesn't have the disorder but may have something close to it is going to get misdiagnosed? Well, once again, it's a great question, and it's a thorny question, and I I, I do believe that early detection, early early screening and detection of autism is extremely important, and it ought to be the health, public health imperative that it, that it is. But that said, I would argue when it comes to the mild cases, you know, uh, the the younger in age that we screen and detect autism, the more likely that a struggling child, a struggling toddler in particular, will be misconstrued as, as, as having a mild case of autism spectrum disorder. And I, I can kind of, if you want, speak, speak to that issue some more. Well, it's interesting, the statistic that you give in Back to Normal, that up to 30% of children diagnosed with autism at age 2 do no longer fit the diagnosis at age 4. Yes, it's, it's out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, and so that's that's a pretty remarkable uh, misdiagnosis rate. Well, I mean, to, to to be fair, I think there are people that would say that perhaps uh, you know, so the thirty percent number should take into consideration children that had a mild case of it and got the services they need and and fell off the spectrum. My point, and it's a conservative point, though, is that I, I do believe that. Autism spectrum disorder is a severe, debilitating, lifelong condition where you you don't move in and out of it. Um, so that that would be my counterpoint, and and so 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 there's that. But 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 I the thirty percent number I think you know has to has to point to just cases where the diagnosis doesn't apply in the first place, or large numbers of them. Well, let me ask you a question about childhood bipolar disorder. I know that not long ago it wasn't considered a disorder that happened very frequently or nearly at all, and now we're seeing quite a bit of childhood bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think any part of the rise in that condition is due to the rise in the use of ADHD medications? Because I know there is a small percentage of people who will have manic episodes or psychosis oh. when they're on the ADHD meds. You know, I, I can't speak to that question with, you know, great knowledge. I mean, I do know, though, 
that one of the side effects, one of the least discussed side effects of the ADHD medication are negative mood states when a child is coming off of their morning dose. So I do think there is a, a, a medica- can be a medication-related uh, explosive temper, negative mood reaction situation on ADHD meds with, with some kids that can start to look like a bipolar rage. So, yeah. And there's also some controversy in the medical community about the definition of childhood bipolar. Yeah, and, and th- therein lies the rub once again. Um, bipolar disorder about a decade ago uh, was rewritten whereby mania in children was defined as irritability. Um, rather than classic mania, and that just opened the floodgates, I think, in terms of seeing children who have explosive episodes as having bipolar disorder and that being a form of mania. Um, And I think that's one of the factors for the spike in diagnoses of bipolar disorder in kids and teens. The other one is is what's called psychiatric rebranding, so in other words, in the 70s and 80s, there were diagnoses that were popular like oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder that were perfectly good diagnoses for people like me to ascribe to a kid that weren't, on the face of it, severe diagnosis but got the kid the help, the treatment they needed. Uh, with managed care and the rationing of mental health care, those types of diagnoses no longer got the kid the kind of coverage they needed. And so all of a sudden we start to see bipolar entering the picture, which is, you know, generally considered a severe and debilitating mental illness, and that got kids the coverage that they needed. Uh, so we rebranded diagnosis, you know, in ways that, 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 that whereby bipolar disorder became uh, the, the preferred diagnosis to use to make sure a kid that was, you know, argumentative, irritable, explosive, got got the help he or she needed. So, Dr. Nalati, we only have a couple minutes, but Mm -hmm. maybe you could just touch on some of the solutions you offer in in Back to Normal or or the tips that you you point uh, people to uh, in terms of solutions. Well, it's complicated. I have a whole chapter in the back uh, called Parenting with Authority. Uh, You know, but let let, let me end with a a few uh, words of wisdom for parents. I mean, I think we always need to remind ourselves as parents that most children, most of the time, are naturally impulsive, forgetful, distractible, moody, disorganized, prone to take the easy way out, and their self-discipline is a perpetual work in progress. Um, and so we really need to start there and not assume that, uh, that, that a child has something diagnosable going on just because they're, they, they don't, they're not born with the ability to engage in self-control and, you know, to, and to kind of self-monitor their moods. And parents should also realize that most of the time under their roof, they're probably seeing their child at their worst. So in other words, in this day and age, most kids inhibit themselves at school to fit in uh, because of all the demands that are out there. And at home, that's where they show their inner monster, their more primitive, regressed self. Uh, because the, most kids, I think, at home believe they'll always be loved no matter what. 
And so there's not, it's, it's much riskier to kind of act out at school than it is at home. So then uh, that late afternoon homework situation is the classic one where a child starts behaving like they're certifiably insane when they're just simply asked to sit down and do their homework. It's, you know, so, so parents should be wary about assuming that the child that they see under their roof acting insanely uh, is, can be generally true of their child. So I would say keep those things in in mind, try as much as possible to strive for, for calm assertiveness. Um, uh, if you're getting triggered over and over by your child in the same ways, engage in some self-examination to see what might be getting recreated from your own childhood in unhelpful ways. At times, challenge the intensity of your child's feelings, uh, but not necessarily the legitimacy of them. Most of what ch children need to be socialized as to the outward expression of emotion. They may have legitimate reasons for being angry or sad or irritated, but the way they express it might be over the top. Children need help with word choices. They need help with defining what's an appropriate way to express anger. Uh, it's not, it's, it's, they're not born with that. So in your parental role, See yourself as, as needing to socialize your child as to what's appropriate, you know, express, expressive mastery, what's appropriate in the way of expressing emotion. So I'll leave your listeners with, with some of those uh, tips. That was great, Dr. Nalari. It was a pleasure having you on Health Watch today. I really enjoy having the opportunity. We're talking today with Dr. Enrico Nalati, the author of Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder, and Autism Spectrum Disorder. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naming, your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine. Next up is Madness Radio. Radio.